All right, good evening. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors of the Hallows Church, focused primarily up at our North Seattle expression that has been uh, gathering together on Sunday mornings now since February, and it's been a good journey. Uh, We have much to be encouraged about and grateful for. Thank you for your prayers in that regard. But it is always nice to be back here in Fremont with you, especially in this capacity as we can open our Bibles together and, and explore God's Word. Now, Pastor Andrew's out of town this week. He's serving one of our partner churches in Texas, but he will be back next week to kind of wrap up our study of the book of Philippians under the header, Indestructible Joy. But in the meantime, what I'd like to do today is explore this passage that we just heard. It's It's an interesting passage. It's a very bizarre passage, in fact, but it's also, as you understand what's going on in this passage, it's also one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible when you step back and understand the context and what this passage is actually teaching us. And so let's explore this passage uh, together now. Genesis chapter 15, if you're not already there in your Bible, head on over in that direction if you'd like to track along. Now in late 2012, there was a 75-year-old woman named Marion Shirtleff. And this woman, she purchased a Bible in a used bookstore near her home in San Clemente, California. Now, after making her purchase, she returned to her home, and when she sat down and opened that Bible, she found something quite incredible inside of it. What she found, tucked within the pages of that Bible, were several folded yellow notebook sheets that looked like they had been there for quite some time. And when she took those sheets of paper out of that Bible on that day, what she discovered caused her heart to begin racing. You see, as she took those sheets, out, sheets of paper out of that Bible and began looking at them, those sheets contained a child's handwriting on them that seemed strangely familiar to her. And as she studied those sheets, she saw her own name in her own handwriting at the top of one of those sheets of paper. And she began to realize in that moment that what she was holding and what she was reading was a four-page autobiography that she herself had handwritten when she was 10 years old. You see, she had written this story as a young Girl Scout in order to earn a merit badge back in her hometown of Covington, Kentucky, more than 2,000 miles from where she now lived. The woman said, I opened that Bible and there was my name. She said, I could recognize my own handwriting. She said, I was literally trembling and I began to cry as I discovered my own story tucked away within the pages of that Bible. Now, the reason that I share this with you today is because I want to suggest to you that we actually have something in common with this woman. You see, when you and I open our Bibles, when we look deeply and thoughtfully into God's Word, there's a sense in which we can find our own stories in there too. We can see our own lives and our own stories and our own struggles nestled within the pages of God's Word as well. Not in the same way as as this woman, of course, but but the pages of the Bible from the very beginning show us stories of people just like us. They show us people just like us who are on journeys of faith that often include many ups and downs along the way. They show us people who truly want to trust God and His promises, but who don't always do so well at that. And one of the things I love about the Bible is its honesty. 
It's the most honest and accurate book, I think, ever written about this human condition in which we find ourselves. It presents us as we really are. The good, the bad, and the ugly, which is not so much the way we like to present ourselves to the world today, is it? We can be quite selective at times, can't we, in in what we like to show the world about ourselves? We like to show the good things, the positive things, the attractive things, and at times the, the filtered and the Photoshop things. But the Bible doesn't really do that at all. The Bible is truly a book that lays it all out there. It shows us very real people going through very real experiences and very real struggles. And it shows us as well the unedited truth about many of our heroes in the faith, even when that truth may be uncomfortable or unappealing or unsettling to us. And we certainly see all of these dynamics at play as we step into the biblical narrative of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Abraham, you see, was indeed a a man of great faith. In many ways, he's considered the father and the founder of our faith. And he was a man who grew in his faith and in his relationship with God over time. But he was also a man who sinned and struggled and stumbled in spectacular fashion at many points along the way. And by exploring Abraham's journey of faith, we have much to learn because because Abraham's walk with God can in many ways help us to understand our own. Chapter 15 of Genesis begins with these words in verse 1. It says, after these things. It says, after these things had taken place, the Lord came to Abraham in a vision And said, don't be afraid, I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. And the reason the Lord says these things to Abraham is because at this point in his walk with God, Abraham was having a hard time. Abraham was struggling. In fact, he had many questions. He had certain doubts. And these struggles he was having, interestingly enough, were happening as a direct result of his decision to follow God. And to trust God. And one of the things I'd like us to consider today is the nature of the struggles that Abraham had and how he faced them and how God responded to them. Because I think we have much to learn about our own struggles as we listen in to this very intriguing uh, exchange between Abraham and God in Genesis chapter 15. But before we go there, let's take a very brief step back for a moment to consider who this Abraham is and why he was struggling in the way that he was. Abraham first comes onto the scene in the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, quite frankly at a time when there seemed to be very little hope for humanity. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God created everything, and it was good. In fact, when God saw all that he had made, he saw that it was very good. But then, over the next 10 chapters of the book of Genesis, beginning with Adam and Eve and and going from there, men and women, not unlike you and I, again and again tainted and tattered what God had intended for good. And as a result, the human heart became infected and affected by sin, and our relationship with our Creator became severed by our own selfish doing. It reached the point in Genesis chapter 6 that we're told that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. It says, because he saw that the intentions and thoughts of the human heart were wicked, 
and evil continually. And yet, amazingly enough, God did not turn his back on mankind. Quite the contrary, in fact. It is in Genesis chapter 12, with the introduction of this man, Abram, that God begins to unfold for us an incredible storyline of rescue and redemption. He begins to reveal a beautiful plan to correct course for mankind in spite of mankind and really to set the course of human history on a new trajectory that would ultimately lead us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But it starts in Genesis chapter 12. God initiates a relationship with Abraham there in that chapter that would have cosmic implications. And God initiated this. We must never lose sight of that. Abraham did not seek out God for a relationship. God pursued him. In fact, based on available information, many scholars think, it, think that it's doubtful that Abram had even heard of the one true God, Yahweh, at the time this interaction occurred or when God first called Abraham. But by an act of pure grace, God shows up and says, he says, you're my guy, Abraham. I'm going to fix what humanity has broken, Abraham. I'm going to make things right in this world once again, and I'm going to do it through you, Abraham. God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, those are some big promises. But God also said, before I come through for you on those promises, I need you to do something for me first, Abraham. He says, I need you to leave behind the life that you're used to. I need you to leave behind your country and your community and your home, and I need you to trust me with your life and with your future. And I want you to live, Abraham, as if my promises are true. I want you to live as if these things are going to happen, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the circumstance may be. And God didn't really provide any details at all on how these things would happen. He only said that they will happen. And one commentator summarizes Abraham's interaction with God in this way. He says it went something like this. God says to Abraham, I'm going to send you out. And Abraham says, where to and what for? And God says, I'll tell you later. Right now, just go. And then God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And Abraham says, where and how? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wander. Then God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And Abraham says, how? When? I'm 75 years old and my wife is barren. And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. You see, with Abraham, just as with us, God calls us at times to trust him. And he calls us at times into action with what seems like incomplete information. And that's not easy, is it? We don't typically like to make big life changes and big life choices without adequate planning and plotting and preparations. Most of us need to see where we're jumping to before we actually make the leap. Abraham didn't know where he was going, so he had no way of thinking through any sort of long-range plan. And what this did is it placed Abraham in greater dependence on God. And that's a good thing but it can also be a very challenging thing. 
Martin Luther King Jr. said that faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's not always easy. And I'm certain it was not easy for Abraham either. And yet in verse 4 of chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, we're told that Abraham went. He went as the Lord had told him. He left behind his old life without knowing exactly where God in this new life might take him. He left behind what was familiar and comfortable and certain to step into the unfamiliar and the uncertain and at times the uncomfortable. And he did these things because he chose to believe the promises that God had given to him. But again, that does not mean that trusting God and and following God came easy for Abraham. In fact, by the time that we get to the passage that we're exploring today in Genesis chapter 15, 10 years had passed since the time that Abraham had first trusted God and had left his homeland. And so by by the time that we hit this passage today, Abraham was already quite deep into a life of faith. And at times he was struggling greatly with it. Because in many ways, at this point, it did not seem like God was really coming through for Abraham in the ways that God had promised to him. At this point, Abraham was still watching, still waiting, still wondering how God was going to deliver on what he had said. In fact, Abraham had just nearly lost his life in chapter 14. You see, he had just rescued his nephew named Lot from some very unfriendly people, and he was fearing retaliation. He was fearing for his life and for the lives of his family. And so at times, Abraham was struggling, and this was one of those times. He had questions, he had doubts, and God shows up this second time, 10 years later, when Abraham still has no child, when he still has no land, And when he had just nearly lost his life, and God says this, he says, Abraham, I'm still here. Don't be afraid. He says, I've still got this. God is saying to Abraham and to us too, I think, that despite appearances, despite circumstances, despite how you may feel, he says, I'm still with you. I'm still for you. And my promises have not and and will not change. And Abraham's response to God in this moment is very interesting. His response is, in fact, very instructive as well. What we don't see Abraham doing is saying to God in this exchange, "Uh, thank you very much, Lord, for this reassuring word. Now I feel much better. We don't see Abraham saying, boy, I was really losing my grip there, Lord, but this really helps. I appreciate it very much. No, Abraham kind of spews out some stuff here that has obviously been stewing and a brewing inside of him for some time. What Abraham seems to say to God here is actually, I'm glad you brought this up, Lord. It's been 10 years since you made those promises to me and since I left everything behind. And yet I have no land and I have no child and I was just nearly killed. The response by Abraham to this appearance by God, to this very gracious reassurance by God actually seems to be doubt and skepticism and cynicism. Abraham says essentially, uh, Lord, how again are you planning to bless the world through me? Because this does not seem to be going so well so far. 
One of the things we see in this passage in Abraham's journey of faith and in every journey of faith is that we all struggle to truly believe God at His Word. We all have questions and doubts and struggles at some level in our walk with God. But we also get to see in this passage God's response to Abraham's doubts. And it's a remarkable exchange between the two. We see God's reassurance in verse 1, right? Fear not, I'm your shield. We see Abraham's doubt in verse 2. Lord, I'm still childless. I trusted you. Uh, What's going on? And then we see again God's reassurance in verse 5. It says that in that moment, God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you can. He says, So shall your offspring be, Abraham. He's reassuring him here. And watch this now. It says, Abraham believed the Lord in verse 6. So maybe he's coming around now, right? But then in verse 7, in the very next verse, Abraham seems to be struggling again. He says, but Lord, how can I know for sure? How can I know? Now there's a guy we can relate to, right? On the one hand, we're told Abraham believed, and then in literally the next sentence, Abraham says, I'm still afraid. I still have questions and doubts. Lord, how can I be sure? What we see here is something fascinating, I think, and that is the the coexistence of faith and doubt in the fallen human heart. We see faith operating concurrently with and in tension with Abraham's doubts and his questions and his struggle to fully trust God. Indeed, we see something quite honest here in this passage about the reality of doubt. Doubt never goes away completely in this life, and we need to remember that. We mustn't be surprised or alarmed by that. At some level, we all struggle to truly believe God at His Word. And to be honest, that is the fundamental source of most of the problems that we face It says, Abraham believed God in verse 6, but in the the very next breath, he's expressing to God his ongoing struggle with that belief. And if I had to venture to guess today, it would be that like Abraham, you too know something about this very same dynamic in your own walk with God. And so what do we do with that? How do we wrestle through our own questions and our own doubts when God's promises and his truths seem to be quite clear, but we just can't take hold of them. Now, of course, different people take different approaches to this. There are, of course, different approaches to dealing with our doubts, that's to be sure. For some of you, perhaps in your Christian upbringing, you were never really permitted to doubt. Doubt may have been strongly discouraged for you. You may have been told that you just need to believe. You just need to trust. You need to quit asking questions. Don't doubt the Bible. Don't doubt God. That's not appropriate. But the truth is, churches in which it's unsafe to raise questions and to express doubt create individuals with very flimsy foundations to their faith. Because if you're unable to be open about your questions and doubts in your walk with God, You'll never get any of the answers you need, and you'll be ill-prepared to face the many competing cultural narratives that are vying for our attention and for our allegiance. So some will say doubting is to be discouraged, but on the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, 
Some in our culture will tell you that it's intellectually sophisticated and emotionally mature to be skeptical about everything. You need to doubt everything. You need to be cynical about everything. You need to deconstruct everything. After all, who's to say what is right and wrong? Who can know for sure? Who's to say? But here's the thing. If you insist on doubting and deconstructing everything without also doubting and deconstructing your own doubt itself, what you're really doing is giving yourself an exemption to your own worldview that is inconsistent with it. Because you can only be cynical about everything if you're willing to be cynical about your own cynicism. Two approaches to doubt. You have the secular view that makes doubt into a virtue, and you have, uh, maybe I could say, a traditional religious view that says doubt is inappropriate. And then you have the biblical view. You have God and the Bible gently and graciously answering those like Abraham who express their doubts, but at the same time never accepting that place of doubt as a place where someone can stay indefinitely. Did you notice how God responds to Abraham's questions and his doubts? God does not say, how dare you question me? He does not say, how dare you doubt the promises that I've made to you? God does not say that at all to Abraham. But he also does not say, oh, well, that's just the way it is, right? You can't help it. It's fine. You just need to accept it. No, God does not condemn Abraham for his doubts. What he does is he answers Abraham. He challenges him in a sense, right? He, he keeps coming after him. There's a remarkable persistence here that we see on the part of God. We see Abraham struggling with doubt, and we see God answering him. Not once, not twice, but on multiple occasions in this narrative, patiently, gently, and graciously. So on the one hand, God is very patient with our doubts, but on the other hand, he does not intend to let us stay in our doubt forever. In the book of John, in uh, the 20th chapter, we're told that Thomas was not present when the disciples saw the risen Christ appear. And when he was told that Jesus was risen, Thomas said, I don't believe it, I won't believe it until I see him. I won't believe it unless I can actually put my finger in the mark of the nails in his hands. And then when Jesus shows up to Thomas several days later, he says, here, Thomas, touch me, see me. Stop doubting and believe, he says. There's a certain balance here that can be seen. On the one hand, Jesus does not show up and say, how dare you doubt me? Instead, he says, you want to touch me? Here, go ahead. On the other hand, at the very same time, he says, stop doubting, Thomas. And so what we see is this balance in which doubt itself is never encouraged and yet doubters are always encouraged and always answered and addressed and welcomed. And this brings us to the very peculiar scene in this passage where we're going to see God answering Abraham's doubts in a most decisive and in a most dramatic way. You see, beginning in verse 9, God answers Abraham's doubts, not simply with more words and with more promises. No, God says, I'm going to show you, Abraham, why I can be trusted. I'm going to show you why you can be confident in my promises and why you can move through your doubts and your fears and not allow them to get the better of you. 
Now, remember in verse 8, Abraham was expressing his doubt. He says, but Lord, how can I know for sure? Then in response to Abraham, the Lord says to him in the very next verse, verse 9, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, stay with me here. This is where things get pretty bizarre for a moment, but stay with me because what starts out as something very bizarre turns into something very beautiful. God says, bring me these things, bring me these animals. That's all he says. And without hesitation, Abraham seems to know what God is talking about. He goes and gathers these animals. And then, without any apparent further instruction from God at all, we're told Abraham slays these animals. He cuts them in two, and he arranges the halves opposite each other. He creates this sort of space, this aisle, if you will, between the severed animal pieces. And so what in the world is going on here? Well, the, the reason Abraham knew right away without being told what uh, God was talking about with respect to gathering these animals is because God was talking about something that was very familiar and very understood in that time and in that place. Now, to us, of course, this sounds extremely unusual, but to the people in that time and place, they would have understood that a, that a covenant was about to be made between God and Abraham. They would have known that God was about to enter into a contract of sorts, a formal agreement with Abraham in this moment. Now, in our culture, the way you make an agreement with another person or another uh, party is that you write things down. You make certain stipulations. You literally spell out the terms of the agreement that you're entering into, right? It's called a contract. And the parties entering into the agreement, they sign the contract. They sign the piece of paper that contains the terms of the agreement between the parties entering into it. This is how we hold one another accountable in our society in a legally binding way. This is how we hold people responsible for doing what they say they're going to do. But that's not how it was done 4,000 years ago in the historical and cultural context where this story takes place. Now, even though that was a long time ago, we actually know quite a bit about that time and place, archaeologically speaking. And one of the things we know is that when parties would enter into a covenant agreement, there would be a ceremony of sorts that took place. It was a ceremony in which the parties entering into the covenant would, in a sense, act out the consequences of not holding up their end of the deal. They would act out in these ceremonies in a very vivid and very visual way the consequences of breaking their promises. There's actually an interesting passage in Jeremiah chapter 34 that speaks to this very thing. It's an obscure passage, really, unless you link it to Genesis chapter 15 and to the type of covenant ceremony that we're talking about here. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 17 to 20. God says, you have not obeyed me. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms they made, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two and then walked between the pieces. I will hand them over to their enemies and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. He's talking about a covenant ceremony there, just like we're talking about here in this passage. And so the way that this would work is that you would sacrifice these animals, you would cut them in half, you would arrange the halves just like Abraham did, opposite one another, 
and you would pass between the pieces that were cut up. And by doing this, here is what you were saying. You were saying, if I fail to do everything in the future that I'm saying that I will do today, in other words, if I break my promises, if I don't live up to the terms of this agreement, may I be as these animals. May I be as these severed animals. In other words, if I fail to do what I say, may I be cut off, may I be cut up, may I be cut to pieces, may I die, and may my dead body be scattered over the land as food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And so that's what they would do. That's how they made contracts with one another in that time and place. And it's pretty vivid, isn't it? It's pretty dramatic, much more so than simply signing a piece of paper, wouldn't you say? Now, there's one more important piece of historical information that we know about these covenant ceremonies. Often you would have non-equals entering into these sorts of covenant contracts. In fact, very often what would happen is a powerful king or a great emperor would conquer a lesser and less, smaller and lesser nation. And most typically, the ruler of the smaller nation would be required to enter into a covenant with the conquering king. And it is that conquering king, of course, who would set the terms of the new arrangement between the parties. But here's the interesting thing. It was usually only the lower and lesser party who would be made to walk between the pieces of the animals in a covenant ceremony such as this. The more powerful king would not walk through the pieces at all because he did not need to. Why would he? He was calling the shots now, after all. And so the great conquering king would just sit on his throne and he would watch the lower or lesser party walk between the pieces. And the lower or lesser ruler knew full well what that meant. It meant that he would lose his life if he failed to live up to the demands and the expectations of the conquering king. And surely this is exactly what Abraham thought was about to go down that day. He probably wondered at this point if God had had enough with all his questions and doubts and was going to kind of tighten the screws on him. Surely Abraham thought that he would be walking between the pieces, that he would be taking a vow, that he would be saying, okay, God, I will do this, I will do that, I will not let you down, or maybe I be cut to pieces, just as these animals, and scattered across the land. Surely Abraham thought that Almighty God was simply going to observe from afar as Abraham walked between the pieces alone on that day. But what happened next is not at all what Abraham expected. What happened next is one of the most dramatic and compelling scenes in the entire Bible, if you understand what it is teaching us. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, we're told that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now these terms in verse 17, smoking fire pot and blazing torch, they're, they're actually very difficult words to translate from the Hebrew into the English. But most commentators seem to agree that the first word gives a sense of, of kind of a lot of smoke, of billowing smoke. Well, the second word is used to describe quite often lightning, a flash of lightning or a lightning strike. Now get this, this is very helpful in fact, that, that these very same words are also used to describe God's very presence as he descended on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And so that tells us something quite critical here. 
it tells us that what we're talking about in this scene in Genesis chapter 15 is, is God's immediate presence. Now, we know, of course, that lightning typically comes in a bright and brilliant flash, and it's gone as quickly as it came, right? But the way that the author uses his words in this passage suggests that this lightning did not merely come and go. Rather, what the language suggests is that as Abraham watched what was going down, a a searing and sizzling streak of lightning appeared, but it did not disappear. Rather, it held its shape, and it remained there in that moment in front of Abraham. Imagine that. Imagine the brightness, the crackling, the sparks, the the billowing smoke as this flash of lightning held its shape right there in front of Abraham. And we're told here in verse 17 of chapter 15 of the book of Genesis that this very physical and this very uh, dramatic manifestation of God himself appeared and passed between the severed animal pieces on that day. And then, get this, in the very next verse, verse 18, it says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And so that's it. That's all. The covenant ceremony is over. It's done. And there are two stunning things that we need to see here. The first stunning thing is who passed between the pieces. God passed through the pieces. He put himself On the hook, he committed himself. And remember, powerful kings just never did that. Why would they? And the second stunning thing we see here is who did not pass through the pieces. Abraham sat there and did nothing. He did not participate in this ceremony at all. And and so, so can you see what is happening here? Friends, this is God answering Abraham's doubts. This is God answering our doubts on some level. This is God himself saying to Abraham, if I don't do everything I told you I would do, if I don't fulfill my promises to you to give you a son, to make a great nation of you, to bless the world through you, may I be as these severed animals. May I be torn to pieces. May I be cut off and cut up and left for dead. This is God saying to Abraham, I'm willing to die if I fail to keep my promises to you which I won't, but this is also God saying to Abraham, I'm willing to die if you fail to keep your promises to me, which you will. And so can you see the beauty in this? Can you see the grace in this? Can you see the gospel in this? B.B. Warfield once said that the Old Testament is like a fully furnished room that is very poorly lit. In other words, there are all kinds of things in the Old Testament that you really can't see unless you open a window and let light in from the New Testament. And so from the standpoint of the New Testament, looking back on the Old, we're able to see all kinds of things that we wouldn't otherwise see. And this is, this is surely one of those instances, right? A spectacular one to be sure. Abraham had no idea at that time of the cost that God took upon himself by making that one-sided oath of grace on that day. He had no idea of the full implications of what that covenant contract would mean to Jesus and what that would mean for humanity. But centuries later, with the light of the cross of Christ shining brightly onto Genesis chapter 15, we can see this passage come into clearer view, can't we? 
we can see this passage, in fact, come alive in an incredible way. The Apostle Paul most certainly saw this and and celebrated this. On more than one occasion, Paul pointed back to Abraham and pointed back to this very passage. And do you know what he said? In Galatians chapter 3, referring back to this passage we've been studying today, Paul says this. He says that God, in this passage, foreseeing that salvation would come by grace and not by human works, was preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand. He was preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand. You see, when Jesus Christ was slayed and cut off and crucified, he was upholding the covenant promises made by God to Abraham 2,000 years prior when God passed between the pieces alone that day. Every other religion and worldview says you need to pass between the pieces yourself. It's up to you to live up, to measure up, to make things right. But it's only in the gospel that God passes between the pieces for us and says, I'm going to bless you irrespective of whether you live up or measure up. So long as you trust me, he says. My blessing, he says, does not depend on your faithfulness. It depends on Jesus' faithfulness. Friends, Jesus paid the ultimate price for us so that God could love us and accept us and bless us even as we continue to doubt Him and question Him and fail Him. And so can you see that? Have you taken hold of that truth? Do you see it as beautiful? Is it changing you? Let's pray together now that it is and that it will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for this encouraging glimpse of your plan from the very beginning to do for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us in Jesus. Lord, would the things that we've heard today stir our hearts and stimulate our minds? Would they deepen our faith and would they dispel our doubts in Jesus' name. Amen.